you'll please turn with me to Luke 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 and 22 today. So starting with Advent, we've kind of been going through the, the first part of Luke, seeing the announcement of the one who comes before Jesus, John, and then looking at Jesus, prediction of his birth, then his actual birth, and then last week we looked at his childhood or the one story we have from it, and today we're going to do our last one before we start Acts, and we're going to look at Jesus' baptism, and next week we're going to start looking through Acts, which is really just part two of Luke. Luke wrote Acts as well. So this here is Jesus making his final preparations before he begins his ministry. So let's read together Luke 3 verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you reveal your Messiah to us. God, we ask that you would help us this morning, that by your Spirit you would illumine this text to our hearts, that we could know and understand it, and that through that we would know and love you more deeply, that we would love our neighbors more deeply, and that we would follow Christ more closely. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever done something that took a long time to prepare? I'm not talking Thanksgiving dinner where you worked a day or two for it, but something that took a long time. Years even. And then it can't happen without some sort of external confirmation. Like the doctors in our congregation, right, they don't wake up one day and say, well, I'm going to be a doctor and then start practicing medicine out of their garage. Doesn't happen. It's not allowed. It's like that with a lot of professions, isn't it? That we have to go through the hoops that, you know, Allison knew she was going to be a teacher. She wasn't a teacher until she graduated, until she passed the exams and got her certificate in a job, this external confirmation of it. Dan and I didn't just decide we want to be pastors and then start preaching the next week. We feel this sense of call, and that's where God's leading us. We need this external confirmation from his church and his people as well. Then ultimately we're ordained. We're set apart for this ministry. What we see in our passage today is Jesus' final preparation before he begins his ministry. He doesn't just start it. He doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. But he comes to be baptized. And he receives confirmation of who he truly is. And with that, what he's called to do. He's fully grown now and he's heard glimpses of this his whole life. We get those stories in the beginning of Luke. And as we saw last week, even he knew it. When he was 12, he says, Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? But today, we get confirmation of who Jesus is from God's own perspective, from the Father himself. 
And Jesus isn't merely credentialed to begin his ministry here. He isn't just bolstered and renewed in confidence that he can go forward, but he's actually anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go forward and to do what he's been preparing his whole life to do. And the way this works isn't only what we see in Jesus. It's also analogous to how we go about our ministry. Because Jesus was made like us, to save us. He doesn't leave us there, but he also, praise the Lord, takes us and makes us more like him. And we'll see that. Our passage begins here with John's baptism. It's one that's described earlier, if you go back in the chapter, and I hope you go back and reread the first part of chapter 3, the first 20 verses. And it's described as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We know that's not all. John's ministry is also one of preparation. We saw that in our call to worship, that he's preparing the way of the Lord, making straight his paths. He's preparing for the Christ, for the Messiah. And some of his followers even think that might be him. When they come to him, he says, no, one's mightier than I is coming. I'm not worthy to touch his sandal. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So verse 21 begins, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. You have to ask, well, why would Jesus be baptized? If this is for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, did he need to repent and be forgiven of sins? No, he never sinned. He didn't need forgiveness. If he did, he couldn't save us. And if he did, then God's word is not true. If you read through the New Testament, you can't come away from it seeing Jesus as a sinner. It's very explicit just reading through the New Testament. Author of Hebrews mentions it. Paul mentions it. John mentions it. Peter mentions it. Just over and over and over again. Last week I emphasized that Jesus had to be fully human to take our place. Right now I want to emphasize that he had to be without sin or we are without hope. For many of us, this just makes sense. We know this, it's been ingrained in us, but maybe not. While we were in Mobile for Christmas, we had to get one of our flights rescheduled. We didn't want a four-hour layover with a five-month-old, so we got it shortened to one hour. And I was talking to the Delta agent on the phone and small talk while she's getting the stuff fixed up. And I told her that I was preaching Jesus as a kid, you know, last week. And she said, I would have loved to have seen that. I'll bet he got into all sorts of trouble. I said, well, he went missing in that passage, but... I don't think he got into all sorts of trouble. He couldn't have done anything wrong. He couldn't have sinned. She said, he had to have. He was a kid. I said, I hope he didn't. If he did, he can't save us. If he did, he can't take our place on the cross. If he did, he's dying for his own sin and not ours, and we are without hope. He had to be without sin. And praise God that he was. And is. Why then was Jesus baptized? 
Matthew actually gives us a reason. It says that John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you want to baptize, and you want me to baptize you? Jesus answers him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consents. So you even have John being like, you shouldn't be baptized, you should baptize me. But it's not quite time for Jesus' ministry. And so we say, let it be so now. The time has not yet come. It's about to. We're right on the verge. But it hasn't come yet. And as always, he submits to the Father. He recognizes John's role as a prophet, one to whom the word of the Lord has come. And he submits to it. By accepting John's baptism... One of the things he's doing is he in, he's endorsing John's ministry. And he's endorsing his message. A message that he himself will pick up and take further and ultimately fulfill. What was John's message? It's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes around preaching good news to the people. So what we have is John's message. What is Jesus' message? Because I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says twice in three verses at one point, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. It's the same message of repentance and the kingdom of God. Yet now in Christ, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Where Jesus receives this baptism from John, after his resurrection, he institutes a different baptism in the Great Commission. The baptism that we practice in the church today. One that is not less, but is more than John's baptism where John preaches a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and for repentance. All of that's encompassed in Christian baptism as well. Think of Peter in Acts 2 when he's preaching. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Everything in John's is included and brought forward in Christ. But more than that, by receiving John's baptism, he's identifying himself with the people. He identifies himself with the sinners that he came to save. He enters in. He says, I'm with you. He's part of the people being called to repentance. Though he need not repent himself, he belongs to the people. He doesn't disassociate from them. He doesn't stand back and say, you go over there, you go to John, repent, be cleansed. Once you've done all the work, then come to me. He enters in with them. He didn't do that then and he doesn't do that now. And where we see Jesus associate with the people in baptism, we see that he actually does the opposite in Christian baptism. Instead of him associating with us, he unites us to himself in baptism. It's one of the things that goes beyond John's baptism. 
that were baptized into Jesus Christ, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter also goes on to say that we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, something that we'll be touching on in a few minutes. Now, that's not to say that something magically happens when we're baptized. It's not magic. But it is a sign that points to the realities of the new covenant, of Christ's work on our behalf, of the washing away of sins, and our engrafting into Christ. And it is a seal, like on your marriage certificate where they stamp it down, or on your diplomas. It's a seal where all the promises are authenticated and they're marked on the one who has been baptized. And what is signified and sealed is really and truly received when it is received by faith with the working of the Holy Spirit. Now Luke doesn't really tell us much about Jesus' baptism, just that it happened. In our passage, John's not even mentioned. Baptism isn't talked about other than it's something that happened. It's more of setting the scene for what's coming at the end of 21 and 22. But even in the way that it's written here, we see Jesus' association with the people. It says all the people were baptized and, and so was Jesus. That he's with them. And what's interesting that we see in Luke here that we don't see in Matthew or Mark is that what follows at the end of, or follows after him being baptized is that what happens happens while he's praying. If you read through Luke, pay attention to this. You'll see people praying and you'll see God working. Which is a message for us too. That's not to separate it from the baptism. We read in Matthew and Mark, there's this immediacy to it. It's probably as they're coming, walking up out of the river, Jesus is praying, and then this happens. You don't need to separate it. It's kind of like Dan will baptize somebody, and then he prays for them right after. It's kind of this all-in-one thing. Jesus has been baptized. Now the stage is set. So what happens now? The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here we see the substance of what Luke is talking about. It's this revealing, it's showing to us what is reality. The heavens are open. We see God's activity kind of ripping it open between this earthly realm and this heavenly realm, something that we can't comprehend and that I would like to see. The only picture I have in my mind is like Marvel movies, right? When wormhole opens up. And that might be something that we expect, right? John has said that when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, so kind of what you expect is this, it's opening up. I mean, if, if Avengers has taught us anything about this, it's that when the wormhole opens up, powerful, strong stuff comes in. But that's not what happens here. What do we see descend? It's not lightning or fire. 
It's not this display of power and might. Instead, we see God the Spirit descending on Jesus in grace and gentleness like a dove. It doesn't say he became a dove, but in bodily form, like a dove. Grace and gentleness. Not what we would expect. Especially when we look at Acts 2, when we see the Holy Spirit descend on the church. The sound like a mighty rushing wind that fills the building. And then like tongues of fire coming down to rest on people's heads. That's what, that's what we expect, right? It's not what we get here. So why is it so different with Jesus? If we've been paying attention to the prophecies about the coming Messiah, it might not surprise us all that much. Just think of our assurance of pardon. Isaiah 42, this passage clearly alludes to that. It says, I've put my spirit upon you. He will bring forth justice to the nations. How will we go about doing this? Not by beating it into them. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's so gentle with us. A bruised reed he won't break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Sometimes we expect the opposite. Expect him to just lay it down. But it's not who he is. It's not how he came. Dane Ortland wrote a book. He's a fellow PCA pastor and wrote a book this last year called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. His title and thesis are taken from Matthew 11. There's a passage that many of us know well. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He points out that this is the only descriptor that Jesus uses of who he is in heart. Gentle and lowly. It's not to say in heart as in the seat of the emotions. This is how I feel about myself. This isn't some Gnosticism where who we are, who we feel ourselves to be in our heart is who we truly are despite what we see on the outside. But in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the will. It's the seat of emotion as well. But it's the core of a person as it's enacted out in the world. It's who he truly is. He's gentle and lowly. He's kind to us. He doesn't break us when we've been bruised. He doesn't quench us when we're flickering. Instead, he cares for us. He heals us. He restores us. He doesn't do it from a distance. He enters in. 
He takes our burden upon Himself. Ultimately, He takes our sin and its penalty upon Himself on the cross that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be adopted as His children, that we might be restored to that for which we were created. If we'll only trust in Him. Do you feel bruised and beaten this morning? Do you feel like a flickering flame about to go out? Come to Christ. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And he will give you rest. What we see in the Spirit's dissension on Christ is his anointing. That he is the anointed one. This is the language Messiah is anointed from Hebrew. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's anointed from the Greek. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He's the coming one to whom John was pointing. The one who brings the greater baptism. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The one who, as he begins his ministry in the next chapter, quotes Isaiah 61, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's why he came. And by God's grace, when he saves us, he doesn't leave us alone. But he sends us the same spirit that anointed him and empowered him for his role. So we read in Acts 2, actually in Acts 1, right before he ascends into heaven. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts 2, that's what happens. The Holy Spirit descends and they're empowered for their ministry. And then we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts in Jerusalem up to Stephen's crucifixion and then the people are scattered to Judea and Samaria and then Paul takes it to the ends of the earth that the Holy, Holy Spirit empowers his ministry. And as it was for them, so is it for us. That when we trust in Jesus, he gives us his spirit to live in us, to change us, to renew us, to make us more like him. To empower us to live to righteousness and to die to sin. The same spirit who empowered Jesus, who rose Jesus from the dead, now lives in us that we might live for him. We see more than the Holy Spirit here, though, too. We see there's a voice coming from heaven, the voice of God the Father. Here we have all three members of the Trinity 
are present. We have one God in three persons, all eternal, all fully God. And they're all present here, working together to confirm Jesus in his role and ministry. And working together for the redemption of his people and the restoration of his world. That they're united in this. And what does the Father say? He says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I think there are a couple layers to what's happening here. And I think the layers for the original audience are probably flipped from how we would first understand it. That we have different priorities and a different background for how we're looking at this passage. The first, and this would have been the most obvious for the original audience, Jesus is stepping into his role as the king of God's people. This passage is a reference to Psalm 2, where God says to his anointed, you are my son. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel, of God's people, would be referred to as the son of God, as he's anointed for this special rule, the special role of protecting and leading God's people. In Psalm 2, the son is the king. In Luke 1, before we come to this passage, we've already had Gabriel who announces the birth and connects the throne of David to him being the son of God. There's this connection there that fits with Psalm 2. Jesus has been anointed, not with oil, as David and his sons were, but by the Holy Spirit. And the second layer then, what deepens the meaning for them, is probably the first one that we jump to. Unlike David or Solomon, he is truly the son of God. Not by virtue of his anointing, though he is anointed for his role, but because he has been from all eternity. That he is God himself. Where we previously heard from Gabriel, Elizabeth, the host of angels, and Jesus acknowledges it. Now we get God's perspective where God confirms, you are my son. Jesus is the son of God. And as we read that, we can't just move on. Even in our own minds and hearts, we are responding to that in one way or another. And there are two options. Will we join in and confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is Lord, that He is our Messiah who came to save us? And will we submit to Him? Or will we reject God's evaluation of who Christ is? Will we set ourselves up against God? Don't do that. Trust in Christ as the Son of God. There are no other options. 
What will you do with Christ? The last thing the Father says is, with you I am well pleased. This goes back again to Isaiah 42, our assurance of pardon. But the first verse, I skipped it earlier. When I read. Jesus is his servant whom he upholds, his chosen in whom his soul delights. And why wouldn't the Father be pleased with him? Why wouldn't he delight in him? He perfectly obeyed. He's wholeheartedly submitted to him. He's loved nothing else above him. Aside from it fulfilling prophecy, it makes sense. Doesn't it? But what about you and me? Is that how God looks at us? Some of you may think that's how God looks at you because of what you've done. Because of all the good you've done. All the time you've volunteered and given away. But if we're honest and if we compare ourselves to God's standard instead of to others, we know that it's not true. We know that we defy and disobey God. That's why we have a confession of sin every single week. We can't do good enough to earn God's pleasure. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Others of us are on the other end. And we're confident God is not pleased with us. That we know our sin. We're well aware of it. And we're ashamed. And we feel guilty. We want to hide. We're afraid to go to God until we've cleaned ourselves up. We don't feel that we can. We feel like we need to punish ourselves. That we need to make ourselves feel bad enough. And we can make up for it. Like God is this cosmic disciplinarian who's just waiting to dole out punishment instead of a loving father. But the truth is much better than that. The truth is that if you have crust, trusted in Christ for your salvation, then he has saved you. That you have been united to him. That you are in him. That your sin has been removed. That your guilt is gone. That Christ took that and dealt with it once and for all. And that he has given us his righteousness, his perfect obedience. That we are clothed in that. That this is true of us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. That what the Father said to Jesus is true of all who trust in him. If you have trusted in Christ this morning, and the Father says, you are my beloved son or daughter, in you I am well pleased. You hear that? 
You are my beloved son or daughter. With you I am well pleased. What if we actually lived in that truth? What if we actually believed it? We would be secure in him as our father. That we would be safe. It's one of the best things about having a little baby. We have a five-month-old. And it gives this depth to this picture of who God is as father. And how he regards me. She's not old enough to lie and disobey and do all that yet. She does wake me up when I don't want to be woken up. And she likes pooping in diapers right after I change them. But with all the things that can be frustrating, I love her. I delight in her. I light up when I get to see her and she smiles at me. And if me, the sinful, fallen man that I am, can love my daughter like that, can want what's best for her so badly, how much more for our Father in heaven who is in control and sovereign over all things, who loves us, and who, for the sake of Christ, delights in us and is pleased with us. It's good news. If you are in Christ, that is how the Father sees you. That in Christ's baptism, as he's final, finishing his preparation for his ministry, we see him confirmed as the Son of God. We see him empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't pay for our sins and walk away. He pays for our sins. And then he unites us to himself. And he gives us his spirit. And we're adopted into God's family that he is our older brother. Praise God that while he was made like us to redeem us, he makes us more and more like him. Trust in him. Cling to him. 